Let's pray. Oh God, burning in the soul, fire in the mind and spirit in the heart. We cannot kindle out of the ashes of our lives the fire to return. You alone can bring that cleansing flame. You alone can bring that healing fire. And so as a worshiping community, we lay our lives bare before you and humbly ask that through the ministry of the Word, now made flesh, our hearts would taste and see that indeed you are good. This is your moment. We wait for your word through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been a week of unspeakable sadness. I don't see how as a nation we can return to the sorrow and grief of September 11's anniversary and not ourselves sense anew the drain of the ache and the hurt and the loss. With you I watched part of that non-stop stem-to-stern coverage and Again, my heart awakened sorrow for those who still today grieve. The press was there, the cameras, it was, it was, it was grief that could not be done in private, as so often we wish we could grieve. But as the world watched, the reporters took notes, raced, to their laptops and filed their reports that night. One of the reports filed from ground zero I hold in my hands and I must share this with you. The grief is palpable even in print. The survivors alone were allowed down into ground zero as you know as the mournful reading of the victims of September 11 took place. And many of the family sought to make graves in that piece of hallowed ground they now for the first time were given access to. One woman I'm reading now, one woman threw herself onto the pile of roses she had painstakingly arranged for her husband, wailing and pounding the flowers with her fists until most of the petals had fallen off. One young girl cried so long and so hard over the little grave she had built for her father that she finally vomited. A mother who had spent 30 minutes building an elaborate grave site for her daughter suddenly began frantically emptying her water bottle onto the mound screaming, Oh God, she's hot, she's on fire, I've got to get water to her. It has been a week of unspeakable sadness. And whether the news has come from afar 
or whether the news has come from up close. We cannot in stoic reserve separate ourselves from the sadness of this earth journey. Yesterday morning, it just finally, I, it, I went down to my little study and I put on Samuel Barber's Adagio. The Adagio has been set to words called Agnus Dei, Lamb of God which taketh away the sin, sins of the world, have mercy on us. Dona nobis pacem, grant us peace. It is our collective heart today that surely is ready for the next face of Jesus that we see here in the mighty apocalypse. I want to see that face today. I want to look full into those wonderful eyes. I must see Him today, and so must you. Open your Bible with me, please, to the Apocalypse, the Bible's last book, the grist and fodder for our New Year journey, Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Do we pick up where we left off? I'm in the new <clears throat> Revised Standard Version. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. And hit the pause button right there. Can you imagine that? We have hardly gotten half a breath into this mighty book of the ending. And it begins with the two gifts we desperately need today. For every heart that is gathered on this campus and in this sacred place, feeling graceless and peaceless today. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that the very gifts we seek, the twin gifts of grace and peace, are in an instant promised to the reader. And so if you've come to this place today without grace because of how you lived last week and without peace because of what has descended upon your soul, I need you to know that before this moment is over, you will be given grace and peace. Two gifts are yours if you read this book with me. From whence come these two gifts? Let's read again. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Hit the pause button again. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so grateful that the Scripture this morning does not just read from Him who is and who was, but John intentionally inserts the words, not only who is and who was, but Him who is to come. Do you know what that means? That means, my friends, that God has a future. God has a future. And if God has a future... And God has yet another word to speak for the heartache and insanity of this life, whether you experience it or not. He has a, another word to speak. I was on a national radio network this last Thursday night. They were doing three days of reflection on, uh, on September 11. It's called Life Talk Radio. And so I called in. They wanted me to call in for an interview. And so we spent 30 minutes reflecting on the meaning of September 11 these many months later. And uh, one of the... Uh, the uh, personalities 
doing the questioning, asked, now listen, Dwight, uh, what, what, what is it? What kind of hope do you have that arises out of the ashes of 9-11? And I said, you know what? My hope is the certainty that God is going to have the last word about every September 11 we have ever experienced. He's going to have the final word. Because He's not only the God who is, He's not only the God who was, He is the God who is to come. God has a future. And if you're not sure about your own future, you know what, my friend? I need to tell you today, you need to saddle up to God just about as quick as you can. Because in tandem with Him, you have the assurance of that future as well. Your third millennial journey, you walk in step with the one who has a future. You have that future. You get the future. He'll give it to you. Ah, let's read it again. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. Where does this grace come from, this peace? Oh, it comes from Him who is and Him who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. I love the way the New Living Translation put, uh, renders this. From the sevenfold spirit. And the moment He says sevenfold spirit, we know instantly John is painting a portrait of the mighty Trinity. He's got the Father. He's got the Spirit. But He wants to remind us that the revealing... The revealing that we have come to the apocalypse to see over and over again is about the hero. And the hero is the second person that he saves till last. The second person of the Godhead. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And here it comes. Three faces of Jesus we're looking for today. Three faces that will meld into a solitary composite. But if we can see that face in this journey of immense sadness, we can be healed with hope. Three faces. Now comes the hero, the revealing. And where does this grace and peace come from? And verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Three portraits of Christ, three of them. But he melds them into one, as we will note in just one moment. What are the three portraits? Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ, what's the second face? The firstborn of the dead. What's the third face? Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jacques, Jacques Ducan, who teaches here in the Theological Seminary. Hebrew and Old Testament are his specialties. Jacques has just written a book on Revelation. Just come out. I hold the book right here in my hands. Title of the book, The Secret of Revelation. And then I like that subtitle, The Apocalypse Through Hebrew Eyes. He also has written a book. And I say also because I think last week I did mention to you, did I not, that another one of our own right here in Pioneer at Andrews University, Ronko Stefanovic, has written this commentary, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So now here's another one, Jacques Ducan. Listen, I'm just wondering, has anybody else written something on... Uh, Revelation? I would love to, I would love very much uh, to have whatever you've written. Particularly, look at, if, if, if you give the book to me, I quote it in the pulpit. <laughs> if I have to go to the bookstore and buy it, then I just, you know, I just, it edifies my personal study, but, uh, and of course I'm just kidding. And they'll edit all of that out of the television uh, program, I'm sure. Anyway, Jack, Jack has written. This marvelous book on Revelation. Fascinating, fascinating insight I got for reading this. Listen to this. 
He says, hey, wait a minute. You want to take those? He calls them the three attributes of Jesus. We're calling them faces, all right? Faces. He says, you take those three and you put them together. What you have are the mighty stages of salvation. This is, this is incredible. Watch how this works. Take a look at the screen. So that you have, number one, you have Jesus, the faithful witness. What is that referring to? That's referring to His incarnation. He came down in our midst, as the choir sang at the beginning of our worship. The Word was made flesh. He witnessed to the truth. We saw the glory of God in His face. So the faithful witness, He is... That, that, def, that describes His incarnation. What's the second title? The second title, Firstborn of the Dead. Well, Jacques... Jack points out that, in fact, that refers to Jesus' death and resurrection, obviously. And the third title, ruler of the kings of the earth, that refers to Christ's royalty. He says, you take those three portraits together and you have salvation history. One composite, as it were, one composite face. That's our, our metaphor here. One face for the entirety of salvation history. And interestingly enough, these three portraits match three actions that are described, attributed to Christ in the doxology. And so I want to read that doxology with you right now. It's, uh, it, it come, look, we'll just start back with verse 5 at the beginning. It comes in the middle of verse 5. And from Jesus, Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now here comes the doxology to Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest serving as God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Three actions, three titles, all washed together, as it were, into a compelling composite. The sweeping portrait of salvation as it is in Jesus Christ. He who... Loves us. Well, that would be the incarnation. He came to love us. He who has freed us from our sins by His death, that would be the death and the resurrection, and has made us a kingdom. That is Christ in His royalty. Three faces of Christ wrapped into a solitary composite of the Savior of our salvation. Okay, so here's the question. Which face shall we focus on? We've just been given three. Which face shall we take our last moments and focus upon? I want to share with you but I didn't get it from the uh, commentators, but I, th I still think it's, uh, I think it's valid and credible. I want to share with you this idea, and that is, take all three faces. You will discover that, in fact, all three are the faces of Calvary. All three of them are Calvary. It's Christ of the cross we see there. Let's take a look. at. Let's take that first face. The first face is He is the faithful witness. Now, let's put that on the screen. Faithful witness. All right. The faithful witness. That's the title for Christ. Now, notice there's a Greek word here. The Greek word for witness is martus. From whence comes our word martyr. Jesus is the faithful martyr. What is a martyr? Martyr is one who witnesses for his faith. How many here have ever met a martyr? Have you ever met a martyr? Me neither. You know, the way I figured, it is so tough. It's tough enough to live for my faith. I can't imagine dying for it, can you? And yet there have been. Abel, first one out of the chute. Abel, his brother, his older brother comes to him and with that stick, clubs him to death. That's Abel. That's Stephen. Oh, we got Stephen. Stone, thud, thud as Stephen drops dead. We got James, the first of the twelve. Head, gone, thanks to Herod. Paul, Head gone, thanks to Nero. Peter, whose cross is turned upside down so he won't die like his Lord. John Huss, the flames crackling around his feet, consuming him. Martyr. We know martyrs. We know them well. John, who writes this, the only one of the twelve who will not suffer 
Martyrdom, says Jesus, is the lead martyr. You know what? The next time you're in a class, the next time you're in, the, you're, you're in a business circle, the next time you're in some kind of social engagement and you sense that you are being critiqued and condemned for the expression of your faith, I hope you will remember that the face of the lead martyr draws near to you and Jesus Christ himself will affirm you in the stance you have taken. We have a martyr who's gone before us. There are three faces here. So the first, oh, it's the face of Calvary. The face of a martyr. What's the second face? Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. He's the first to die. You say, he's not the first to die. Yes, he is. He is the first to die the death of sin. The forever abandonment from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first to die that death in our place. He is the firstborn of the, of the dead. And of course, that phrase reminds us he did not stay dead. In fact, let's put this on the screen. Uh, uh, the, the Greek word here is prototokos. From whence comes our word prototype. I like that. He's not even the first resurrection. There were resurrections in the Old Testament. There have already been resurrections in the New Testament. There will be more. He's not the first, but he is the prototype. He is the one who single-handedly, personally, took on the enemy of death and the devil and destroyed him by his own death. So he's the prototype. And because He has risen again, you and I, on the basis of the prototype, have hope today. Three faces. All three come from Calvary, don't they? Let's see. The first face is the face of the martyr. The second face is the face of the victor. He's the conqueror. And the third face. What's the title? Ruler of the kings of the earth. Take a look at that face on the screen before you right now. See that face? At Calvary, it's the face of a king with a crown of thorns plated and pressed upon his royal brow. He now reigns from, you see that there? He now reigns from that wooden cross. And when the dying thief cries out, Jesus, you must remember me when you come in your kingdom. In that instant, in blood, he is inaugurated as king. In blood, because he's called king. You have a kingdom. And when you come, remember me. This last week, George Bush stood before the mighty assemblage of the greatest leaders on earth, the United Nations. So I heard last week George Bush called the most powerful man on earth. The day is coming when every leader of this race will bow the knee before the king who reigned from a wooden cross and earned the right to be called king of kings, king of kings and lord of lords. Three faces of Jesus. Take a look at the martyr, victor and king. A mosaic of salvation's greatest face, the very face of the Christ of Calvary. It's no, it's no wonder, John, he can't hold it back. I mean, John just got through the Trinity and John has to stand up. He said, let us stand and sing the doxology now. And he bursts into that doxology. Let's read it again. Now to him, verse 5, middle of verse 5. Now to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Let all the people say, Amen, Amen, and Amen. Now to him who loves us, present tense. John mangles up his tenses. Now to him who loves us. And he doesn't say freeze us. He said freed us. Going back till you get all the way back to this. Now to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. The very first words in this doxology are, are, are fresh paint, as it were. Fresh paint on the cross of Christ Jesus. To him who loves us. 
and freed us from our sins by His blood. But I need to ask this question in your presence, please. How is it? How is it that blood dripped, if this were the actual cross of Calvary, blood spilled on this wood? How is it that blood frees us from our sins? Can you explain that to me? I mean, this much is obvious. We were in a pathetic, pitiable, sorry state to need the God of the universe in the sacrifice of Christ to offer Himself. That I know. In fact, I'm reading a book right now. Have you ever heard of G.K. Chesterton? English journalist, writer, par excellence, and, and, and an apologist. By the way, uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, was the precursor. In fact, the book I'm reading right now, Orthodoxy, which is kind of a quasi-autobiography where he magnificently defends the Christian faith. That book was formative in C.S. Lewis's faith journey. C.S. Lewis, the atheist, who became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ through C.K. Uh, uh, G.K. Uh, Chesterton. So anyway, I'm reading in this book. The London Times. This is back at the turn of the century. The London Times got several writers that it knew, Chesterton being one of them, and it, the Times asked these writers to write an essay on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? All right? Could you please, you great writers, you write. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton's submission, I suppose, was the shortest submission in that entire contest because, let's put it on the screen. When uh, he wrote in, what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We smile. It's true, isn't it? You know what's wrong with this world? We are what's wrong with the world. All of us, we're wrong. And because we are, we rebel sinners, we are the reason. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, may I remind you that our problem is not only with Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden, our problem is G.K. Chesterton and Dwight K. Nelson. That's our problem. It's us. We. It is we who are wrong with the world. Our sins. I'm talking about yours right now. I'm talking about mine. I know mine. Don't worry about mine. You take care of your own. Our sins are what cost His life. Separated us. Alienating us from God. Not because He is mad at us. He is not mad at us. But because we have rebelled against Him. Yes, we have. You know why we've, we've rebelled? Oswald Chambers puts his finger on the pulse of why we fall from his classic Inspiring classic, my utmost for his highest. Take a look at this. We all struggle with this. This is our collective story. Oswald Chambers writing, Temptation is a suggested shortcut to the realization of the highest at which I aim. Not towards that which I understand is evil, but towards what I understand is good. You never are suckered into doing what's evil. You never. You have considered it good by the time. Come on. You have considered it good. I never go for evil. I always go for good. And temptation comes along that line. Now, now uh, Chambers goes on here. Temptation is something that completely, isn't this true, baffles me for a while. Oh boy, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It baffles me for a while. I do not know whether the thing is right or whether the thing is wrong. Now, temptation yielded to is lust deified. That desire finally becomes as God to me and I have to bow down and worship that desire and that desire takes over. That desire becomes my God. Lust deified and by the way temptation to yield to is proof that it was timidity that prevented the sin before that's, that's pretty punchy isn't it I was simply afraid before I finally I finally followed 
Oh, don't miss, don't miss Chambers' point. Ladies and gentlemen, temptation is, the, the, the M.O. of sin is always toward the good. I mean, that, is there something wrong with this tree that God created in the Garden of Eden? Was the fruit poisonous? No, it's a good tree. Is there something wrong with wanting to be like God Himself? No, that is a very good desire. But sin's M.O. is it insists you have to have it now in your way on your terms. Boom! I want it now. Give it to me. There's nothing wrong with sex. Sex is a gift from the garden. What becomes wrong is when I insist that I have to have that sex right now. Temptation is lust deified. And I finally bow down and I give obeisance to that idol and say, You're God in my life. I acknowledge it now. We have all insisted... Hey, come on, come on, come on. Don't just be thinking about your neighbor right now. You think about yourself. We have all insisted on gratifying a good desire in an immediate and evil way, and we have all sinned and all have fallen. You know what? You may hear stories in the future about great men and great women who have fallen. You may have heard stories in the past about not-so-great men like yourself and like me. Not-so-great women who have fallen. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is, let us remember, it is not a particular act of sin that determines our fallenness. It is the fact of sin. And the fact is, we have all fallen and we have all sinned. And when one of us does it in a more spectacular manner, it is simply a cry for help. And it is a call for the healing community to be just that. Healing for the fallen one. We are all the prodigal runaways. Even those of us who stayed home, the elder brothers and the elder sisters, who wish we could have run away if we could have gotten away with running away. We are all fallen. All of us. But once upon a time, the story of the gospel and God and Calvary is a story of a God who runs after rebel runaways. And when he catches up with us, out of breath and panting, he crawls up onto a wooden throne and he says, I will die for you in my stead, in your stead. He crawled up onto that cross. In the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah, take a look at this. Isaiah chapter 53, we know these words well. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for, as it read, saints, our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His bruises we are healed. For the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You're not going to believe this, but according to the record, the love of God was so compelling that He said, I will step in. I will die in Dwight's place. I will die in her place. I will die. It's substitution. Let me substitute myself. For them. John R. W. Stott, the most provocative definition of substitution I have ever read. And I want, I want you to catch this. This is just stirring from his marvelous book, The Cross of Christ. The essence of sin. Isn't this dynamite? The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. 
While the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Now, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood. In your stead, in my stead. I read a story out of World War II that powerfully captures the meaning of substitution. What's going on here? Listen to this story. It it, uh, was recorded by Ernest Gordon, who was a chaplain for prisoners of war in Thailand. World War II? Gordon tells the story. It's about a a Scottish soldier turned prisoner. He's a prisoner of war, POW. They call him Argyles. He says, when the day's work had ended, the tools were being counted, and when the party was about to be dismissed, the enemy guard declared that a shovel was missing. One shovel is missing. He insisted, the guard did, someone had stolen it to sell to the tide. One of you did it. He strode up and down in front of the men, ranting and denouncing them for their wickedness, their stupidity, and most unforgivable of all, their ingratitude to the emperor. The men standing stiffly at attention. Who did it? He's screaming now. Step forward. And then he begins to chant. All die, all die. And then, and to prove his point, all die, all die. He raises his rifle barrel up to his shoulders, looks down the sight, pulls back the bolt, and is about to squeeze the trigger when the Scottish prisoner steps forward. I did it. The guard unleashed all his whipped-up hatred. He kicked the hapless prisoner. He beat him with his fist. Still, the Argyle stood rigidly at attention. The blood was streaming down his face, but he made no sound. His silence goaded the guard to an excess of rage. He seized the guard, seized his rifle by the barrel, lifted it high over his head, and with a final howl, he brought the butt down on the skull of the prisoner who sank limply to the ground and did not move. And although it was perfectly clear and evident that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, shouldered their tools, and marched back to camp. When the tools were counted again in the guardhouse, no shovel was missing. That's what happened right here. Somebody stepped forth. I did it. He didn't do it. But he knew that if he didn't step forward, the whole battalion, the whole lot would be wiped. So somebody at Calvary stepped forward who did not do it. And he said, I did it. Kill me. Take my life. Desire of ages. Words that plumb to the depths of that moment. I did it. Read it here. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which He had no share, that we might be justified by His righteousness in which we had no share. He stepped forward and said, I did it! He suffered the death that was ours, 
that we might receive the life that was His. Ladies and gentlemen, it is that instead. It is that instead that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can the blood of Christ free us from our sins? You suppose that's it? Do you suppose that when I look full in His wonderful face, could it be that when I survey the wondrous cross and I look to that face, do you suppose that if I go to this place where substitution took place, He stepped up and said, I did it, let Him go, and He was killed in my place, could it be that, if I, that, that when I return to this place, if I do, and I look up, into that face. Do you suppose that is how the living Christ who loves me frees me from the sins He took of mine to that place? Do you suppose that's it? That if I would go to the cross every day of my life and I would look into the face that appears, this composite face in the apocalypse, and I look full on that wonderful face, do you suppose God could actually create in me a hatred for the besetting, darling, little sin that I keep coddling and saying, someday, 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 could it be? That that's how it works. And if that's how it works, does it make sense to go to Calvary every morning of your life for the rest of your life? A deceased writer named Roger Morneau taught me some years ago. He said, I do this. And I said, listen, let me try it. And I've been trying ever since. Every morning. It's a piece of cake. Matthew 27, 24 through 54. It's the story of Calvary. But what would happen if every morning in this journey on this campus and about this community and around the world, what would happen if every morning we looked into the face of Calvary? Could it be that the sin I've held on to could be pride? Pride away from my clutching hands because I see the cost. You, you step forward. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory dies, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt. 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 On all my pride. Charles Wesley came along one day and he cried out, I would give every hymn I ever wrote in exchange for this hymn of Isaac Watts. Called the most magnificent hymn in the English language. I want to read the words to you. You can follow along on the screen. The choir is going to sing them in just a moment. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Oh, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this is what I want to ask you. Is there a man here today 
who needs to give his all to the Lord of Calvary. I'm going to ask you to come up right out of that pew right now, whether you're sitting in the very back of the balcony, in the overflow room, or here in this church. I'm going to ask you to come forward and come to the Savior who instead of you has paid the price, the penalty, it's all covered. Is there a woman here today who knows she needs a new beginning with the Savior? I don't know who you are. Your story is private. It's just you and Jesus. But this would be the most opportune moment with Calvary's arms stretched out before us to come and find the new life that only the Savior can bring. You may never have confessed Christ before in public. Ah, then today's perfect for you. Or you may have done so once upon a time, but you know your life is no living confession of Him now. And today, Jesus said, she who confesses Me before others, I will confess before the Father. Today, He who confesses Me. Today. O oh, Father, in the shadow of Calvary, we have, we, we have stood to our feet. How can we sit? We stand in honor of the monarch of the universe who himself is now forever one with us. Martyr, victor, king. He is our Savior. And in the presence of Christ, we stand in humble adoration and awe that He would step forward and say, I did it in our place. Oh, Father God, for these, Your children, who responded to Your invitation through the Spirit of Christ and who walked that long aisle to the front. Oh, God, through these who are flesh and blood around them, put Your arms about them now. Reach out and touch that one with a quiet assurance that his decision, her commitment has been registered in the Lamb's book of life. For those who come for the first time, all heaven sings. For those who come again out of smitten hearts, all of heaven stands. O God, take the decisions made in this holy place at the beginning of a long journey whose ending we cannot yet see or know. But take these decisions. Seal them forever and ever. And Holy Father, look, we're all standing. We all look full into that wonderful face. Oh God, I pray for all of Your children here, those watching. I pray, Holy Father, that You will call us every new dawning to go to the foot of the cross and see the place where our sins were crucified, see the place of our victory, and in that upward gaze, morning after morning, dear God, bring the freedom that only the blood of Christ can bring. Keep us free as we journey hand in hand, heart to heart, with our Master, and our Savior. 
And now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you spotless before His throne with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore, let all the people say, Amen and Amen.